Welcome to The Rot Focus, a podcast for rotters, newbies, and veterans, and everyone in between. We're hosted by M.A. Lee with the assistance of Remy Black and Edie Rooms, all from Rotters Inc. Books. Our focus is productivity, process, craft, and tools. Each episode lasts as long as it takes to fix a quick dinner, grab a short commute, or take a brisk walk. Resources and links are in the show notes. Visit us at therockfocus.blogspot.com. Now, on to this week's episode. It's the second from last episode in the Discovering Characters series, and we've reached the third of our three sliding scales that reveal character growth or decline. Today we do transitions. All of these, progressions, transgressions, and transitions, develop a character as they move through certain stages. We can take them all the way through the stages during the course of a novel, or we can highlight maybe the progression from one stage to the next, the decline, growth, deepening of evil, or climbing out of an evil. With transitions, we see how outward circumstances can cause growth even when our hearts and minds may have intended to avoid any transformation. And that's the key. We often are pushed into our transformations in ways that we never anticipated. And so it is for our characters. Transitions. People can become stuck in a progressive or a transgressive scale and never move beyond a certain point. They might remain at the safety level of Maslow's or be unable to overcome their envy of a co-worker. Two sliding scales propel people through their stages rather than gluing them at a certain point, as the 1996 Emma with Gwyneth Paltrow remains stuck in extrinsic esteem and nothing more. On these scales, people may linger at a plateau for years, but they will tip into the next stage Circumstances cause growth, even when the heart and mind refuse to acknowledge any potential for transformation. Stages of grief. Often depicted as a circle, the stages of grief is not cyclical, it's a transition. A person doesn't fall back into grief after surviving each stage. The first modern expression of the stages of grief by David Kessler listed only five. A six was added when Elizabeth Kubler-Ross joined his work. One, denial. Two, anger. Three, bargaining. Four, depression. Five, acceptance. Six, meaning, which is the recent addition. Some people have now expanded the original five to seven. The seven stages of grief from the Recovering Grief website list. One, shock and denial. 2. Pain and guilt, 3. Anger and bargaining, 4. Depression, 5. Adjustment, 6. Reconstruction, and 7. Acceptance and hope. Death is not necessary for a person to enter the grief stages. Any drastic life change, retirement, losing a longed-for opportunity, 
moving away from family and friends, major surgery, will cause an entrance into the stages. People move at different rates through each stage. Someone who has confronted multiple losses over several decades may move quickly, almost leapfrogging a stage or two, yet then discover themselves struggling in unexpected ways after another traumatic event. A person who seems untouched and into the later stages may wake up weeping, having never really worked through the earlier stages. Multiple movements through the grief stages do not ensure an easier passage. The sixth loss may be much harder to bear than the third one. Every loss is different. We writers can devote an entire novel or short story to single character or multiple characters overcoming grief. Short stories by necessity may collapse or combine some stages. The 1991 episode Confession of the TV series Law and Order presented these stages of grief when police detective Logan, played by Chris Noth, was confronted by the murder of his partner, Sergeant Grevy. His rage caused him to assault the criminal in order to force a confession, which created problems for the prosecutors. In Logan's scenes through the episode, he worked through each one of the five stages. The last scene of all shows him in a counseling session acknowledging the final acceptance stage. Five Psychological Stages to Maturity In our lives, we age, but we may not mature, a careful distinction that writers have to remember. Our five physical age stages, infancy to age, may coincide with mental age stages, although some people never achieve all five. Infancy and identity is the first stage, learning who I am, my close group and larger group, my name and places within my group. Pay attention to young babies in large social groups. For weeks, a baby will happily go into the arms of anyone who is willing to hold him. Then one week, baby will scream with fear when he is handed off to someone he sees only on Sundays. Baby has identified his close family group and the Sunday-only person does not belong to that group. Baby cries to protest this stranger. Baby will gradually learn his name, Mama and Dada and more, especially the name for the soft cuddly that goes to bed with him every night. Teenagers revert to identity when they are transplanted from a known environment and dropped into a completely different one. Teenagers also assume different masks, playing with different identities. If allowed to explore without antagonism feeding their need for attention, they will return to the comfortable known identity. If their exploration is met with antagonism, their natural attention-seeking behavior will root them in the most conflict-ridden mask. They will glory in it as an act of rebellion. Young adults may attempt to recreate who they are when they journey to far university campuses. They will experiment, especially if they had no opportunity in their teen years. Sometimes their recreation enables them to cast off destructive patterns of behavior. Once in their 20s, juggling job and living on their own, any change to behavior becomes extremely difficult. The second stage is childhood and training. Playing at work, accomplishing household chores, learning basic hygiene, social etiquette, 
and discovering cultural mores. Little children play with construction toys, stethoscopes, mini kitchen sets, and more. Little boys have tiny tools just like daddy's. Little girls dress up like mommy. They mimic the things that they see adults do. We teach them to brush their teeth and to clothe themselves. We teach them not to burp at the table and shake hands. We sing the ABC song and recite nursery rhymes and fairy tales, most of which have lessons that adults need to go back and learn. Don't stare, we say. Help me pick up your toys. Can you count to ten? As they leave toddler age, we assign chores, more and more each year, to teach them how to take care of themselves and their living space. They learn to use the microwave. They learn to read and write and cipher at home and then at school. We teach them Santa Claus and fireworks and our sports affiliations. We encourage them to join T-ball and Little League and Heritage Girls and more. These are all the basic foundations for what will help them thrive as adults. Primitive culture had little extra knowledge that had to be learned, just refinements of the basics of hunting and gathering. In modern culture, we have extended childhood with 12 years of public education starting around age six. We add things we want our children to know, the history of our country, the rudiments of natural and physical science, geography, the upper mass. We teach literature filled with the enduring truths of life. Third stage is youth, duties and responsibilities for self. When children are able to care for themselves without reminders from adults, when they take the initiative to do what they want and support themselves or add their support to the family group, then we have the youth stage. When a 14-year-old has to be reminded to put his clothes in the laundry, he is not in the youth stage. When a 16-year-old saves her paycheck for a future trip, she is firmly in the youth stage. When a 21-year-old graduates college who still wants dad to pay for her apartment, gets a part-time job to pay for her weekly manicure pedicure, but wants mom to buy her clothes, she is still in the childhood stage, playing at being an adult. When an 11-year-old decides to mow lawns over the summer and use the money to pay for his Warhammer models, he's no longer in childhood. Modern civilization has used an extended educational system to push back adulthood and enforce it with child labor laws. I agree that teenagers should not need to work in unsafe conditions morning till night in order to support themselves. Don't mistake what I'm saying here. By pushing back adult thinking, we have delayed the maturation of our youth, especially those who think adulthood is about having a good time and only doing what you want to do. In primitive cultures, when children entered puberty, they were often initiated with rituals into adulthood. They were expected to take on adult responsibilities. While they would have received any additional instruction in hunting, using a bow and arrow, or participating in an elk hunt, or in gathering foods like how to avoid poisonous leaves and roots while the flowers of the same plant are perfectly safe to eat. The youth were expected to support themselves without being dependent on others. In modern civilization, we have 30-year-olds still living at home, making a salary but offering none of it to their parents as rent or as help with the weekly food budget. 
We also have 13-year-olds who take on extra chores in the neighborhood so they can add a little bit of money to help their parents meet the mortgage payment. The 13-year-old is proof of maturation. The 30-year-old is not. Rant over. Fourth, the adult stage, duties and responsibilities for others. Being an adult is not only caring for yourself, but taking care of others. The best example is the man and woman who marry and begin to have children. Both support the family. Both participate in what has to happen for the family to be successful. When one parent leaves the home, gets a divorce, refuses to pay child support, or refuses to come around to see her children, they have fallen out of the adult stage. They may have never really entered it. Midlife crises occur when people want to abandon the adult stage and return to their youth. Devotion to a relationship and family is hard. It's much easier to care for yourself alone. Some people have small outbursts of the midlife crises. They need a van, but they buy a red sports car. They're struggling to pay for little Johnny's broken arm, but they go on a vacation and put it on the credit card. The final stage, which few achieve, is maturity, altruistic sacrifice, a willingness to sacrifice personal wants to help others to whom you have no duty or responsibility. I might call grandparents who have the full-time care of their grandchildren an example of this stage. The classic example is the foxhole soldier. He's with his buddies, sheltering from grenades and bullets during an attack. And a grenade is thrown into the foxhole. To save his buddies' lives, the soldier uses his own body to cover the grenade. That's sacrifice. But the grandparent is also sacrificing. At a time when they should be slowing down, many are working extra hours to pay for the unexpected advent of a teenager into the household. Teenagers are expensive. Here's an example of the stages of maturity. A short story by Dorothy Johnson, A Man Called Horse. The film doesn't develop the stages in the same manner as the short story does. Johnson opens her story with an unnamed young man of great wealth and high position, who is dissatisfied with his life in Boston. He obviously has esteem issues, for he wants to travel to the 1840s frontier where he will be treated like a king, for in the West, all white men are kings. And I quote the story. He is the perfect example of the cliché, rude awakening. First, the young man discovers that he is definitely not a king, his uneducated guides know more than he does, and they are unwilling to associate with him as a comrade. Then his group is attacked by a hunting party of the Crow tribe. The other white men who know how to defend themselves are killed. The young man, who is bathing, is beaten, then tied, and forced to accompany the Crow. A fully grown man, he is like an infant, emerging from the womb, wet and bloody as a newborn, he enters the crow world. Once with the entire tribe, he is given to an old woman as a slave. He learns her family and learns what his position in that group will be, little more than a beast of burden. He gives himself the name of horse and counts himself lucky that he didn't call himself a dog since the old woman kills the dog when it irritates her one time too many. 
This is the identity stage of a baby and entering the childhood stage. The young man, now horse, has chores entrusted to him, just as children do. He learns how the crow behave, and he is mocked when he makes mistakes. One such mistake is giving flowers to the old woman to gain her approval, acceptable for Boston, but not with the crow, and she mocks him for it. He also learns the language. Learning to speak crow enables him to ask small boys playing with bows and arrows to teach him this skill. All of this is his training for a life in the crow tribe. Horse knows he must become self-sufficient to escape. He also cannot just leave and make his way across the prairie. He wants to return to Boston as a full-fledged member of the Crow, not an escaped slave. He has not overcome the esteem issues which started the story. Chance gives him an opportunity to strike a blow against an enemy, an action that proves him an adult. He also seizes the opportunity to enter the old woman's family as an equal by marrying her daughter, named Pretty Calf. In killing an enemy, Horse proves he can take care of himself, the youth responsibility for self-stage. In marrying Pretty Calf, he enters the adult responsibility for others' stage. Esteem issues continue to plague him. Now when he returns home, he wants to return with furs and horses, evidence of his elevated position in the tribe, proof for everyone in Boston that he became like a king. By delaying to accumulate wealth, he traps himself. Pretty Calf soon falls pregnant. Complacency keeps him with the crow, learning more about the culture. He discovers what happens to people who have no one to help them or to be responsible for their continued life. He learns the reason that the old woman has lost so many of her knuckles, sacrificing vital parts of herself as evidence of her grief at the loss of family members her husband, her sons, her parents. Then tragedy strikes. The old woman's last surviving son is killed. The grieving women give away all of Horse's accumulated possessions, returning him to pauper and enraging him. He determined to leave, except Pretty Calf goes into premature labor. By morning, she and the baby are dead. He has no longer any reasons to stay. The old woman comes to horse with a knife. She can no longer sacrifice a vital part, another knuckle, for that action will leave her crippled. She gives the knife to horse. He slashes his arms, willing to scar himself as a symbol of grief for pretty calf. Yet he vows that he will never show his arms to anyone when he returns home. Then the old woman calls him something that she had never done before, son. This is an obvious request of him to stay and care for her. As he stares at her, he recalls the much-shortened life of another old woman of the tribe who had died because no one ensured she had food and shelter. Horse decides to stay, sacrificing a few years of his freedom, for her life is as important as his. The last story paragraphs reveal that he goes home in three years. He says only that, I lived for a while with the crow. It was some time before I could leave. They called me horse, unquote. He did not find it necessary to either apologize or to boast because he was equal to any man on earth. Another quote. 
Esteem issues resolved because of his sacrifice for the old woman. You can find A Man Called Horse by Dorothy M. Johnson online. It used to be anthologized, but most textbook publishers are avoiding longer short stories like this one. Read the story as a writer, seeing Johnson's details as she drew her protagonist through each of the five stages, all the way to altruism and self-sacrifice for others. The Right Focus is currently in the series all about characters, from building and presenting a character to relationships, leadership styles, team roles, and special touches for characters. Avoid creating characters who are stereotypes. Reveal their public and private interiors. Focus on couples, mentors, enemies, and much, much more. The information comes from M.A. Lee's guidebook, Discovering Characters, part of the Discovering series on the writing craft. Link to the guidebooks are in the show notes. Thanks for listening to The Right Focus, a podcast for writers at all levels, hosted by M.A. Lee from Writers, Inc. Books, assisted by Remy Black and Edie Runes. Our focus is productivity, process, craft, and tools. Music is licensed through Audio Jungle called Background Music Loop. Its creator is Alexander Polishchuk, known on Audio Jungle as Plastic 3. The music comes in different iterations. Show notes and resource links for this and other episodes can be found at therightfocus.blogspot.com. Write to us at linkbooks at aol.com when you have questions, comments, and speculations. We will try to answer you as quickly as possible. By the way, we will not mind your email address. That's rude. If you find value in our content, share with your writing friends or write a review. We're small beans here without the advertising budget of the big peeps, and you can make a difference. And whatever occurs, right on.